You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Amen. So, there's a story of a man who was a leader of a church in an area where the government felt very threatened by Christianity. Christianity threatened their sense of utter and total control of their people, of their society. Uh, So they thought, well, we'll take one of their leaders, this man, and we'll make him denounce Christ. We can deflate some of the, the faith and some of the sort of the epic things that are happening in our land with these Christians. So they approach him and he says, no, I've served the Lord 68 years and he's been nothing but good to me. This is the way I go. This is the way I go. So they said, all right. He talks a big game. We'll just kill him. We'll kill him in front of all his people. So he hears that they want to kill him and he doesn't go, you know, walking to the government building. He tries to stay hid as he has a desire to labor just a little while longer with his sheep. He has this desire. I want to encourage them before this happens. So he tries to go hide and labor in prayer and writing letters. And the guards uh, looking for him eventually find him. And when they find him, he comes to the door. And he says, listen, guys, I know it's about to happen. Let me make you a meal so that I can pray just a little while longer for my sheep. After that, you take me. They look at themselves like, all right. So he finishes the meal. They eat, and he labors in prayer for his people. And they, the guards are eventually looking at themselves like, what are we killing this guy for? They take him. They have orders. They burn him in front of the church. What's interesting is, is the power of a testimony like that. Now, I bring that up to ask you this question. What are you thinking after hearing a story like that? I want you to look at your own soul right now. I want you to pay attention to what you're paying attention to as you heard that powerful testimony from a church father named Polycarp in the year 62 A.D. What are you experiencing about God as you think about that story? What are you thinking about yourself even as you contemplate such a powerful testimony of martyrdom? Maybe you're like me and you're glorifying God for the faith of this man, but you're kind of thinking it's an incredible testimony of another person living with faith that I just don't have. I'm not sure that I would do that. Maybe what you're thinking. But the thing is, when we hear that story, Polycarp's actions, they're not about his faith. They're actually revealing his understanding of God's love. He responded from a place of utter rest in the smiling face of God on him. His actions point to his God. It wasn't him. It was his God. The love of God, beloved, enables us to love well and to suffer well in this life. 
All of this to tell you this. Confusion, though, around how God's work relates to our work in the Christian life interrupts our view of God's love, and it makes us ineffective. Confusion around God's work to us and in us and our work in the Christian life. When there's confusion there about how those two relate, it destroys our experience of God's love and it slowly makes us ineffective. And I think there's a remedy for that even as we journey through Philippians together. But briefly, just the purpose of this letter to the Philippians. In this letter, obviously the church of Philippi, God is encouraging Christians Christians here, to turn from the fear of their external circumstances, to fix their gaze upon the Lord, that they might walk in this life, that they might run the race with consistency and endurance. That's what God is doing in this letter. In this letter, we learn God's heart toward us and his work in us, and that manifests the reality. God's heart toward us and his work in us manifests the reality that for us, living is Christ. I want to make that point clear. In this letter, learning God's heart for us and his work in us manifests the reality that for us, living is Christ. A little bit of context for Philippians. The church is discouraged. They've sent one of their leaders to Paul, who's in jail, and he almost died twice on the way. They uh, have difficult outward circumstances being in an area occupied by Rome, in an area that's proud to be occupied by Rome. And and these things are just consuming their attention. Paul's writing from jail. He's been beaten a hundred times. Their faithful leader almost died. The church has experienced some, some disunity and rivalry within itself. And some are coming teaching confidence in the flesh, and they're challenging uh, the cross of Christ. And so Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes to gain their attention back to the power and the joy of the gospel. The power and the joy of the gospel and their fellowship in it with God and with each other. He's turning their attention back. But how are they to rejoice? How are they to rejoice? The power of the gospel, saints, is not affected by your sin. wasn't affected by their sin. It's not affected by their outward circumstances. It's not affected by death. It's not affected by angels, by rulers, by heavenly places. Yet, how does the gospel help them not live according to their earthly circumstances, but as citizens of a heavenly kingdom? How does the gospel do that? We know that it's supernatural and that it's powerful and God monergistically sanctifies us and does that. But at the same time, he's calling them to turn their attention and to rejoice, calling them to do something. You see this God's work and our work theme. So let's look uh, at the letter of Philippians. And I even think uh, in the opening and in the thanksgiving and in the prayer of Paul, which in, in the beginning of his letters, he's really setting up what we can expect for the rest of it. So without any uh, further comments, we're going to read Philippians 1, 1 through 11, and then begin considering that for our time together. This is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, 
with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in prayer of mine for you all, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Always in prayer, sorry, uh, I'm going to start over in verse uh, 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. We thank God for his word this morning. In our text, We've just considered the opening, his thanksgiving, and his prayer. And here's what we see in this little short section that he sets up for the whole book. We see God's heart and his work toward us. We see God's heart, his love, and we see his work being kept by him. The second thing we see is through being loved and kept by God, we are freed for fruit-bearing. Freed for fruit bearing. So let's just begin working through this letter, seeing what do we see about God's heart that Paul is setting up for us? How do we see God's heart? In verses 1 to 2, in this, this, very, this greeting, it's a standard greeting, but I do not want us to treat it this morning just as a standard greeting. Sometimes that's okay because like Ephesians 1, you got a lot to get to in his opening about election and predestination and this uh, here, it's a little bit different, and I think that we, we should take a little bit time on verses 1 and 2. Obviously, Paul is writing the letter, and he's with Timothy. The church would, would have actually liked Timothy to come to them because they, had a, they spent a lot of time with Timothy. You can read this in Acts 16 and 18, and even later uh, in, the, in the 20s. Their time with Timothy laboring among them. They would be encouraged by Timothy. But see, Paul's alone in prison, and he wants Timothy to stay there ministering to him. So they send Epaphroditus, uh, a leader in the area, to go visit Paul, tell him what's going on, and then bring the letter back. But on the way, he died twice. Or he almost died twice. He died twice. That's rough. That's rough there. That would be discouraged too. Uh, it's like, we could die twice? <laughs> so anyway, Paul and Timothy are together, and they're thinking about this Philippian church. They're servants of Christ Jesus. That's identity language. And we're servants of sin or we're servants of Christ. So they are laboring for the saints, Paul and Timothy. But he says to all the saints, all the holy ones in that area. But how are they saints? Saints in Christ. And anytime we have this in Christ language, we have to think about how we were all in Adam. 
dead, haters of God, his enemies. We had no relationship with God that was benevolent whatsoever. It only earned us wrath. But because of Christ Jesus, we're called holy ones, saints of God. And then, of course, they're in Philippi. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. So point number one under God's heart, God's heart toward us is seen in his grace and his peace to us. God's heart is seen in his grace and his peace to us. So I want to ask you a question. What is grace? And we all follow in line and say, it's God's unmerited favor. It's absolutely correct. That is conceptually absolutely correct. But what is unmerited favor? How would you describe that? Think to yourself, if someone asked you, and maybe your kids have asked you, well, what's unmerited favor? Well, it's something we've been given for free. That's right. That's right. We don't earn it. So we got his favor for free. He gave it to us. But this doesn't necessarily drive us toward the relational language of grace, the relationship that we have with God because of grace. Sometimes when we think about, well, he gave it to us for free, we're sort of understanding how we got it. But grace, the word behind, or, or the concept, the, the, the relational idea behind the word grace really indicates how God is propelled and he's driven toward us to have a relationship with us. I was reading a book recently that really took a deep dive into this word grace, charis, or charis, as some people uh, name their children even. In the original language, grace is actually a word that Paul used to describe what he meant. Well, what did that word mean? That word actually was borrowed from the Greek. And here's the thing. If you wanted to be my friend, you would send a servant and you would send him with a gift. And you would say, hey, um, Ted really wants to be your friend and he's given you this gift. And if you accept it, then... He wants to, to have a, a, an unending, uninterrupted relationship with you where you sacrifice for one another and you love one another. You take care of one another. The gift was Ted's invitation to me to have an ongoing relationship with him. He gave me his favor. He said, you're special to me and you're my favorite. And I want to have a relationship. I want to have a friendship. And it's reciprocal. In me receiving that gift, I'm saying, I accept, and we're going to have a friendship that lasts. That is the word grace. I did not do anything to ask Ted to come to me. Ted decided, that's a special guy, and I want to be his friend. I might be putting words in Ted's mouth. But think about your best friend. Think about someone who's been so, so meaningful to you. Imagine you didn't know them and you wanted to go send them a gift to say, I want to, I want to, I want to be your friend. What kind of gift would you send them? Maybe you send them a gift that's, that's thoughtful, something that they like. Maybe it'd be something that you think uh, is costly to show them that, you, 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 that they really mean something to you. 
You know, it's very fascinating. The Lord, before the foundation of the earth, said he wanted to be your friend. Not even your friend. He was going to be your father. And although we are sinners, we're not even just neutral. We're his enemies. We've offended God in the highest degree. And it has afforded us death and separation from the beautiful, magnificent, holy creator of heaven and earth. Created our own souls. Where we're slaves, sold under sin, blind to God. We couldn't see him nor hear him. And we didn't want him. And grace showed up. Grace and peace came from God and his name is Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were in bondage under it. The Lord came and he didn't leave any ability for you to ruin it. The, 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 the work of the Lord is final. Your sins are completely crushed in his death in your place. But the righteousness you need to stand before God and say, Father, you love me. Not because of anything that I've done. Jesus provided that. But he resurrected and he sits beside the Father now. You know why? Because he wants to hear our prayers. And he likes to intercede on our behalf. And he can't wait for the day that he returns to put the final touches on what he has started. So you think about grace. Maybe we should think about how God wants to be with us. And Jesus is the way he's done that. But then peace. I'm going to be much shorter on this. Peace is the absolute serenity of knowing that this thing will never end. The relationship will never end. It didn't depend on me. It's a gift that I get to enjoy. So why do we need a a greeting like this and a, a greeting like that and a letter like this? Because grace and peace is how we live. And we easily forget it. We easily forget that this is where we live. And the grace and the peace. So we see God's heart for us. Number one, we see God's heart for us in the grace and the peace that is ours from God. But there's more. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. It, you know, it's, it's a little bit choppy. The reading is really saying like, when I remember you, I get excited. When, I th- when you come to my mind, I have so much joy, it entices me to pray for you. That's really what, he's, what, what is being indicated here. That he thinks about him and there's just relational joy. And so he prays to God on their behalf. But why is he joyful over them? Why would there be such rejuvenating and invigorating energy pumping through his body while he sits in jail thinking about these folks? Well, verses 5 and 7 help us understand why he would have such relational joy. Number 5, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day 
until now. So from the first day they heard it, even till now. And then verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. I hold you in my heart, for you're partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Simply put, they could have, they, they didn't have to stick with them. He, he shared the gospel. There's a church that starts and he moves on and he's in prison and he's collecting money for other churches and he's doing this and he's doing that. And you know what the Philippian church did? They constantly supported him financially. They constantly supported him by sending him Timothy when he was laboring among them. They, did, they stuck with Paul, thankful for him, joyful over him, hoping to see the gospel keep going forth in power as they supported Paul. And they, they weren't the richest church in, in 1 Corinthians. I forget the reference. I should have put it in here. There's a reference to how there's some internal struggle because they, they're kind of in financial straits. Yet they're sending money for the Jerusalem church that we considered even last week from Justin. They're sending money so that he can pay for it. The place that he's sitting in jail, as we learned, you pay for the place that you sit under house arrest. Guess who's helping him pay for that? The churches one of which would have been the Philippians. So they are supporting the power of the gospel going forth by loving Paul and supporting him financially and even by sending some of their overseers to go and minister to him as he could have people visit. So, uh, and then even later in verse 19, he's, he knows that they are laboring with him in prayer. Even last week, we considered again how powerful it is that we pray for one another in the gospel going forth. But with all that in mind, that he would be so invigorated by them and, and what the gospel work has done in their life. It, has, it is bearing fruit in their love for the saints and their love for each other and their support of the gospel. Yet Paul's confidence isn't in their commitment to continue that. Where does he go in verse 6? He is confident in God's commitment toward them. That is what also rejuvenates. Their fellowship, verse 7, is their partakers with Paul in grace. So yes, we're invigorated. Fruit will be born, but confidence is in God. Paul makes clear here that their faith and their good works and the joy they have between one another, thankfully, doesn't depend on whether they can keep it up or not. It ultimately rests upon the Lord. And so this is number two as we look at God's heart. God's heart toward us is seen in saving us and promising to never let us go. Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began the good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Beginning and completing. What God begins, beloved, he finishes. He completes it. Some of you, like me, like to start seven books at a time, jump around, finish one of them in life, uh, projects around the house, ideas. This, you know, God isn't like us. God is not like that. He can do it all at once. You know, it's a sweet thought to think that he starts, whatever God starts, he finishes. And this, this really relates to the peace aspect of this friendship with God, this adoption, this sonship, this hope. It's never going to end. It's never going to end because it depended on him and it depends on 
him. Only he could start it. Dead in sin, needing something to bring dead people to life. Only God can do that. Through the power of the gospel, we believe by faith, receiving new life. And when he starts that, he doesn't finish it. He does finish it. He does finish it. God had uh, this testimony written down of that very truth, that what he starts, he completes. And he's making it clear through all the scriptures that it all belongs to him. You know the song by the Gettys, By Faith? And it's this powerful anthem for Christians to remember the story of our faith and how God calls us to be a part of his story. By faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design. In the lives of those who prove his faithfulness. How? Who walk by faith and not by sight. By faith our fathers roam the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts. Of a holy city built by God's own hand. A place where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. The prophet saw a day when the longed-for Messiah would appear with the power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave. By the faith, the church was called to go in the power of the Spirit to the lost, to deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. By faith, this mountain shall be moved and the power of the gospel shall prevail. For we know in Christ, all things are possible for all who call upon his name. This is the story of scripture. This is the story that God has designed. And our hope is fixed upon Christ as we persevere through all of life's trials because of him. So as we see God's heart in his grace and his peace, and we see God's heart in how he's begun our salvation and he's going to complete that salvation, there is also a little more. Observe with me Paul's affection toward these saints in verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. It's kind of insane to think about how Saul used to kill these folks. And the power of the gospel, he's like, I have this ache in my stomach toward you. I have such compassion. I want to fellowship with you in glory in Christ Jesus with you. I want to be together. I yearn for you. But what does he equate that yearning with? The affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus. What's what's real fascinating too is that as he sits in prison, or whether he was an apologist, Whether he was an evangelist in dangerous places, the Philippians were committed to supporting Paul. No matter what. No matter what other churches said about him, no matter what they did to him, they stuck with Paul. And we know that many teachers and preachers are coming through the area 
teaching things, as we learn in verse 7, but they are defending the gospel. They are protecting the gospel together. And it delights Paul. It delights Paul to see God's work in them, and he's just yearning after them. Not just knowing that they're defending the gospel, but he also knows their love for him and all of their financial support and all of the ways they sent people to, to go encourage him. What could cause this kind of response from the Philippians? Why is there such great sacrifice and sharing and love toward Paul, but toward each other? Before I answer that, I want you to think about a time when you felt special. When you interacted with someone very special to you, what happened? Maybe you felt seen and you felt known by a nurturing mother. You remember a special time in your life. Maybe you felt affirmed and encouraged by the word of affirmation from a tender father. Maybe when you knew you had the one that you were going to marry. What happened in that special moment? Maybe it's when a friend dropped everything to take care of you in a time of need. What emotions did you feel? Did you feel appreciated, valuable, secure maybe, thankful? Felt happy, thrilled. You felt loving. Not only love, but you wanted to love. Well, think about how your body felt as you think about one of those moments that maybe stuck with you. Maybe you felt open and calm. Maybe it felt like your body was buzzing with the butterflies because you'd met this special person that you sort of fantasized about. Maybe you felt very sensitive or your stomach ached with warmth because of this special moment. God's heart, number three, is seen in his affection, in the affection of Christ for us. God's heart is seen in the affection of Christ for us. And I, I describe all of that to maybe help you Feel that experience again, how it felt to you mentally as you thought things, how you felt emotionally, how you felt physically in a special moment. Well, listen to uh, this story in Matthew where Jesus comes up on two blind men. And behold, there were two blind men, and they were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, be quiet. Nobody cares about you. You, you. You're no good for anybody. You can't even see. You need somebody to hold your hand when you walk places. Just be quiet. He has nothing to do with you. You're worthless. But stopping. They cried out all the more, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy. Have mercy on us. Jesus stopped. And he came over to them. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. That word pity is a deep ache of compassion in your gut. That's what that word is. A deep ache of compassion. 
our king on planet earth looked these guys in the face with compassion aching in his gut to give them sight so that they could see that our God saves. Son of David is right. My kingdom is forever, and you're going to be in it. So he touched them with compassion aching in his stomach, headed to Jerusalem to be forsaken by his own, to establish his kingdom forever by becoming our sin, dying for it with compassion aching in his bones for us. So we see God's heart in his grace and his peace to us in beginning and completing our salvation and in the affection of Christ for us. And there's one more I'd like to point out. As we look to verses 9 through 11, Paul just prays for the saints. It's my prayer that your love would abound with knowledge and discernment, approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. God's heart is seen in the prayers that he loves to answer. God's heart is seen in the prayers that he loves to answer. You look at the prayers in the scriptures and the ones that he loves to answer. And, and you know, maybe the, the quickest and easiest route is to just look at all of Paul's prayers in the beginning of uh, the letters. That Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that we would understand his love for us, that we would grow and bear fruit. God loves to answer these prayers. And so in verses 9 through 11, what does he pray for? What kind of things does God love to, to answer? He prays that their love would abound, that their love would abound. All of this, though, these 9 and 10, you, you, none of us can get around the fact that it's, the, it's filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from where? From Jesus Christ. It comes through Jesus Christ. So planted in Christ. By grace, remember, by grace, the Father came to us and made us his very own, that we might have relationship with him. So yes, our righteousness, the only righteousness that we'll ever have that God will accept comes from Christ. And if that's the only way we interpret this verse, that'd be fine. But I think that the emphasis here is our good works. It is the fruit. It's the righteousness that comes from being righteous. It's the righteousness that flows from being connected to the righteous one. It, filled with the fruits of righteousness through Jesus Christ. So planted in Christ, not only are we righteous before God, but all other fruit is born from that connection. So if all other fruit is born from that connection, where would we go to ask God for more of it? We'd go to him and we'd ask him, right? But he asks that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. It's always good to have love and knowledge and discernment all together, sort of in the, in the same token. Love without knowledge is often blind. Knowledge without love can often be cold. 
but discernment. We need to know how to apply that love that is informed by knowledge and use it well and use it well with already so much suffering and so many trials and even division starting to, to, to happen in the church, there's, there's much cause for stumbling. There's much cause to misuse the truth, to misuse love, and to have no discernment. There's much temptation that they're going to face that would make all three of those things super hard to do them well. And if you think about it in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul knew the danger of an undiscerning love. You remember the guy who's in extreme sexual sin and they're excusing the sin thinking that they're just showing how good God's grace is. And he's just like, no, you're, you don't actually, you don't understand God's grace when we allow people to run out into death. God's grace says, no, 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 come back to God's love so that we might live in the truth, that we might live in him. So, he rebukes the Corinthian church that they gloried in their love and their openness, but it lacked truth and discernment. So Paul's just praying that we might have love with knowledge and discernment, which really, again, is described for us in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and then be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. To be the pure and blameless language there, the word is, is sincere, and it's indicating, um, you know, if uh, black in a, in a navy blue jacket in, in your closet, I can't tell if it's black or navy blue. You get out in the sun, it's like, that is a blue jacket. And it's like, my gosh, you know, dang it. You got to go in and change. So the word sincere is actually this like holding it up in the sun to make sure it is what it is. So think about that we might attach to Christ, planted in Jesus, that our love would grow with knowledge and discernment so that not only would we pursue what's good, approve what's excellent, but we would be sincere, meaning that our conscience would be clear. We would just have a clean conscience that comes through Jesus Christ, but it also comes from the fact that our love is abounding with knowledge and discernment, and we're approving what is excellent. We're not blind we're like, this isn't good, shouldn't do that. Hey, I think some resentment's building in my heart. I want to talk about it. This is, these are just a few examples of how love with knowledge and discernment would help us to live together. Even as we practice church discipline and we, the elders meet at the table, but then we come before you and we all, with love guided by knowledge and discernment, would make a good choice, would make a wise decision even. Uh, if you even want to think about it that way. But given that there, there's going to be these external pressures and then there's rivalries within the church, how much more would we, we need love to grow more and more with knowledge and discernment? So he, he, he prays that. So just to finish up, planted in Christ to love others well and to not have a distracted heart. That sincere, that word of uh, sincere, to be pure. It's, we don't want to have distracted hearts. We want to see our hearts clearly and that we are chasing the Lord Jesus. We do want to pursue what's excellent. We're seeking to love. We're seeking to find all of our confidence in God's heart toward us, not just blind and undiscerning about how we're living and how we're loving and what we're paying attention to. Lastly, as we uh, finish up this point, 
the fruits mentioned already in this section, who did they edify? Think about the fruits. He says, bound more and more, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So, I mean, excuse me, then verse 9, that they would, their love would abound more and more. What he has just described, what we have just gone through, actually describes their love and the, the righteousness that's been born through Christ. Who did it edify? It edified one another. It edified Paul. It edified the church. And what does all that do? The last phrase, to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. So we see God's heart for us in his grace and his peace to us in beginning and completing our salvation in the affection of Christ for us and in the prayers that he loves to answer. And all of this affects how we live. All of this affects how we live because I guess this is point five moving on, but seeing God's heart for us, in seeing God's heart for us, we are empowered to love well and to suffer well. That was basically the whole exercise we just went through. I just wanted to show us that when we see God's heart, it, God's heart to us, beginning with grace, he came to us. and We benefit. It empowers us to love well and to suffer well. I'm not going to speak as much about suffering well, but because there's going to be plenty of time through this letter to talk about suffering through external circumstances. But I will make this brief comment, and it's a bit lamentable. Sometimes loving each other feels like suffering. And it's like, it's laughable, but if we're all honest, it's true. It is true. And to be sincere, we want, we want to not have our hearts distracted and understand that the flesh is always ready to cause a division. The flesh is always ready to take offense. But we're new. We're new creatures. And so we love well. We're slow to take offense, right? We're sinners and relationships are hard. But if I asked you to be like God, if I asked you to love like him, how are you thinking that you might do that today, this week, in your relationships? Well, to maybe guide us a little bit, God has no needs, but he's inclined to meet all of our needs. He gives what's good and he serves us for our benefit. This is the essence of God. He's a giver. He is love. And as one well-known preacher put it, to become like the image of God is to give. To others, for others, at great personal cost. Not because we've got to earn his love. It's not because we need to prove ourselves. It's because of grace. Think about all of our contemplation on that word grace. He has relationally pursued us. And that, and that friendship will never end. And he's with you to the end of your days, into glory. You will be completed. Think about that as you think about, of course, I would give myself to others. And because of the flesh, it's going to be a great fight to try to do that and to do that well. So for our life together, what are ways we've seen in this text 
They're a sharing church. They're a sacrificial church. And we just had a wonderful message last week about missions and church planning and our support of that and our ongoing continual thinking of how to do that better, of, of sort of calling uh, people to think about how we might impact our community and the rest. And so I will commend that message to us. But I will think about our life together in, in the, our remaining time. I think about how this church, you guys have financially supported those who are in need for various reasons. You financially support each other without the benevolence fund, without other things. I know even my family, I eat and I have a house because of your generosity. The pastors of this church, they get paid, the staff, we are loved by you guys in your financial giving. But for me and my family, even personally, Charlie has a lot of clothes because of your faithfulness to keep yours and hand them down. That's thoughtful. And it's helpful. I know this is silly, but his needs are met by the love of the saints. Charlie's, that is. And I'm sure that many of you have so many examples of just physical, financial, emotional benefits that you all have, have given to one another. Keep it up. Think about all the more the grace of God to you and how you might be able to love each other well. But it is much harder, the personal and emotional sharing, than sort of the physical and the financial sharing. This is why we ask God that we might grow in love and with knowledge and discernment, because this is difficult. When we get into one another's lives in a very emotional, in a very, uh, uh, yeah, just in a very emotional way, this is when we need grace and we need discernment to love well and love thoughtfully. Because this is where division happens in our intimate relationships. This is where disagreements turn to resentments. This is where challenges just linger. This is where suffering really happens probably in our day-to-day. This is where frustrations happen. And so in, in, in seeking to understand and know one another, we're mindful that what we're actually doing is incarnating the love of Jesus. That affection that we talked about toward one another. This is being like Christ in a way that we often overlook. Is with that gut-wrenching compassion. I just want to enter your experience. I want to be in it with you. I want to protect you. I want to speak truth. And I want to love. Knowing that this is probably going to hurt me a little bit too. It's going to be real hard and aggravating and time-consuming to my flesh. But this is one way that we defend the gospel by our deeds, not just physical and financial, but how we love one another. And so what I'm trying to do here is explain, well, what does it mean like to love one another besides physical and financial? It is this emotional side that we all are terrified of. To kind of bring this to a conclusion, I want to ask you to consider this. Is God interested in you? Is God interested in you? Pay attention to what you're paying attention to when you think about that. Do you think God is interested in you? Do you think God knows you? 
that he wants to fellowship with you in your having joy in being known by him. Do you think that he's interested? Do you ever think about being known by God? Not just that he knows about you, but he knows you. The deepest, the darkest, the most painful spots that bring the most shame and and just places that I don't ever need to go to. He is there. And he knows it. He knows how scary it is. He knows what that shame feels like. He's the God of the universe who put on flesh and became sin. Take five minutes alone, a couple days this week, to think about how God is with you, how he knows you. And then, that's a little exercise. Now think about, are you interested that way in some of your other friendships, maybe some of your closest friendships? Is that the interest that you have in mind when you're pursuing one another? Your you know, members of this church. But even think about your family and your friends and the lost people around you. When we think about evangelism, we're sharing our faith with our family or friends or our coworkers. An easy in is to be interested in them, to seek to know their experience, to know those parts that bring so much shame. And what better way to apply the Lord Jesus than to, one, than to someone who has just shared their shame with you? It is, a, it is a tool. So when we say preach the gospel to one another, here is also a way we mean that. That we all have to keep fighting for in our relationships. To close our time, because we've gone too long anyway. In all of this message, here's what I hoped that you take with you. In seeing God's heart, our own hearts are set free. So I took this to say, man, how do we see God's heart here? And seeing God's heart, our hearts are free. So now we understand why there was such a sharing church, why there was such a caring and sacrificial church, and why Paul yearned for them with such affection. And these fruits are how God gets his glory. These fruits are how God gets it. He has gotten his glory through us, understanding his heart and then being set free to love. It's how God gets his glory, described in verse 11. Well, I have a little bit left. I knew I probably prepared too much. I'm trying to land this plane, and I didn't have a good way to do it because there's too much left. But our hope of glory is made sure, and we are enabled to love well and to suffer well in this life. Because we're loved and we're kept by God. That's what we get to discover through the book of Philippians. Our hope of glory is made sure. And we are enabled to love well and suffer well in this life. Because we are loved and we are kept by God. And even, even as we approach the table, is it not a promise that the next time he eats, our Lord Jesus, he'll be eating it with us. Because what he started, he completes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.